Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. The old world is dying. The new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. Welcome to the Time of Monsters podcast. I'm Jeet here, and I'm very happy to be here on The Nation magazine, where each week we'll be discussing the uh, world of intellectual combat and political intrigue. So for this week, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, Midge uh, Dector, who died in early uh, May at the very venerable age of 94. And she had been like a major figure in a sort of American intellectual life. Um, especially on the sort of conservative end of things. Like she can be seen as kind of like a matriarch of American neoconservatism. There were uh, many tributes to her. She was a much loved figure, particularly not just as a writer, but she had worked for many years as an editor at places like Harper's and Basic Books. And for a time at Commentary Magazine, where her uh, husband, Norman Podritz, was a longtime editor. Um, So she's very beloved as an editor, but I think she's also had a lot of um, intellectual importance as a kind of theorist of especially social conservatism as a sort of critique critic of feminism and of gay rights. And I was a little bit dissatisfied by the sort of existing obituaries that have come out in places like the New York Times and the Washington Post. Uh, and I wrote about this in my column in The Nation, but basically I feel like some of these uh, obituaries kind of whitewashed exactly how extreme her positions were. Like she is the author of the sort of infamous 1980 commentary essay, Boys on the Beach, you know, which is like one of the most flagrantly homophobic essays that anyone has ever written and uh, famously attacked by Gore Vidal in the pages of the nation. Beyond that, I don't think the obituaries quite do justice to how significant she was in um, the, the in history and what her exact role was. And maybe one way to frame this is that there's a kind of standard myth of neoconservatism. Uh, and the myth is that you had these group of New York intellectuals who were radicals, who were Trotskyist. And then in the 60s, with the rise of the Black Panthers and the um, um, anti-war movement and the defeat, uh, the looming defeat in Vietnam, uh, and also with uh, Israel becoming increasingly criticized by some on the left, some of these thinkers on the um, who were coming out of the radical left uh, started to move to the right and became neoconservatives. And I, I think one way to emphasize the importance of Mitch Dector and to think about her is that her entire career kind of belies this 
uh, standard narrative that she was never really on the left. I, I would say almost barely a liberal. And furthermore, social issues were always a core part of her identity. That the kind of, you know, she was opposed to second wave feminism before second wave feminism even existed. That she, you know, I was a strong upholder of a certain type of um, uh, 1950s view of uh, heteronormative behavior. Um, and not just in a kind of default defensive way, but as an active ideological argument and, and connected that sort of heterosexual marriage and family life with the Cold War, with this is what America needs to be strong. And so it's very interesting that a figure like that is, you know, who is arguably some sort of conservative all along was a founding father of neoconservatism. And I think the only person I've seen who's like really done justice to Dector and has discussed her is the scholar Ronnie uh, Grimberg, who's an assistant professor at the University of Oklahoma and who's uh, working on a book uh, with Princeton University Press called Write Like a Man, The New York Intellectuals and Jewish Masculinity. And so uh, I'm with that kind of introduction of who uh, the myth of neoconservatism. I want to talk to Ronnie, who I think has a much more grounded view of both Dector and of neoconservatism. So uh, uh, welcome, Ronnie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so pleased to be here. So, um, yeah, do you want to just start with, like, you know, uh, how does Midge Doctor, uh, what does her career say about the trajectory of neoconservatism? Well, as you mentioned, um, neoconservatism, at least when it first emerged, was seen as a reaction to the excesses of late 60s radicalism to Black power, um, to women's liberation to the anti-war movement, um, and also to the to what some, some figures who were tied to neoconservatism, people like Daniel Bell and Nathan Glazer, though I should emphasize that they're not neocons. They kind of help think about it in the early phases, but they depart from, or they don't agree with the conservative turn of people like Norman Podhortz and Irving Kristol. But they, they were sort of concerned that uh, Johnson's Great Society was trying to do too much. Um, that it was trying to fix these social problems using, you know, the government and that it was ineffectual. Okay. And so it's, it's seen as this reaction to the late 60s. And Norman Podhortz famously in one of, I guess now it's four memoirs. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. 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 Uh, depending on how you count them, I think you can just kind of say four or five. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The uh, Norman Podhortz, Mitch Dector's husband, is a famous autobiographist. And I, I've used this line before, but Charles de Gaulle wrote three volumes of autobiography and, and uh, was not known as a modest figure. Uh, and Norman Potters has written four. So draw your own conclusions. So in his second one, 19, I think it's the second, yeah, second one is 1979's Breaking Ranks. Um, the title itself is sort of suggestive that he broke ranks with the left and the liberal community. Um, he really kind of reified this narrative that it was reaction to late 60s radicalism. And, you know, it became the, and, and I should say in many ways, you know, there, there, there are aspects of it that are certainly true. And um, the term neoconservatism, as far as I know, was coined by Michael Harrington in mm -hmm. an article in Descent Magazine in 1972 or three to describe the shift of these four more leftist and liberal intellectuals, right? But I guess if you look at someone like Midge Dector, and I would argue even someone like Norman Podhoritz, there's this question of whether they were ever that much on the left to begin with. Um, and I think Dector is a particularly important case 
because if you look at her writings, there is this social conservatism that is evident, like you said, before second wave feminism even emerges. Um, it's often linked to, with the launch or the publication of Betty Friedan's book, The Feminine Mystique in 1963. Some people even you know, see, see roots of it in, in, in President Kennedy's, he put together a commission on the status of women to study gender discrimination in 1961. But Decker's writing very conservatively about traditional gender roles, about heterosexuality, beginning in the late 1950s. So I think she challenges this idea that neoconservatism was just a reaction to the late 60s. And I also think, you know, she provides an important and sort of an alternative way of also understanding the social conservatism that becomes so dominant in the Republican Party beginning in the 1970s and continuing to our present moment, um, this kind of family values social conservatism and a lot of scholars who have studied that sort of family values rhetoric, and certainly scholars in women's history who look at conservative women who were an important constituency within this sort of new Christian right that emerges in the 70s, they're coming to the earth. Some of their views are informed by religion, by Christianity. But Dechter is a Jewish New York intellectual, a secular Jew. And so her conservative views of sex and gender and heterosexuality have different roots. Um, I think they're rooted really in Freudianism and in particular in mid-century Freudianism. I mean, all the New York intellectuals were kind of saturated with Freud beginning the 1940s. You know, other scholars have written um, at length about how Freud sort of you know, help them understand modernism. Uh, so, so all of, and a lot of them got analyzed. Um, there's not much evidence, obviously, in the archives about analysis, but definitely when I've talked to numerous people who knew them, they, you know, you have to understand the role that analysis and Freud played in this milieu. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, Freud was huge. It's like the high tide of Freudianism in the United States in the 50s. And so I think Dechter's views come out of that. You know, and, and just I'll just say real quick, Betty Friedan has devotes all these sort of or devotes at least a couple chapters to kind of trying to take down mid-century Freudianism precisely because it's sort of telling women that their natural femininity is to be wives and mothers, right. where Dechter in many ways is sort of, you know, she accepts those views. She doesn't see anything that needs to be challenged. Um, yeah, no, I, I think that's a, a great kind of um, introduction and setting it up. And I just want to like maybe place Dector a little bit more in, in that sort of New York sure. intellectual milieu uh, with just, you know, as I mentioned, she was born in 27. Uh, you know, in her autobiography, she talks about how she was kind of seen as the boy in the family because she was like, didn't Not have the typical feminine, um, stereotypically feminine uh, attributes of being deferential and was like, you know, very talkative and very uh, assertive, uh, you know, had a little bit of like education, but was kind of uh, dropped out, but into, uh, went into this milieu, into, I think interesting in the form as a secretary. She's the first member of the sort of Dector Potteritz clan to work for commentary. Uh, and many of them would go on to work for that magazine, but in 1948. And I just want to like, you know, the commentary is like uh, published by the American Jewish Committee, edited by a man named Elliot Cohen. And it is a more, um, uh, unlike other publications of the New York in intellectuals, which were kind of secular or, uh, you know, didn't have any sort of like ethnic identity commentaries, like kind of 
uh, openly uh, a Jewish magazine. And, and but Cohen himself has a kind of like a project, which is a kind of to take this kind of like Jewish community uh, that had been uh, in an earlier generation, an immigrant community, urban in the ghettos is now like, but in the suburbs is becoming more upwardly mobile, is finding much more opportunities because, you know, after World War II, there is a real break, uh, effective challenge to many of the uh, uh, systems of prejudice against American Jews. He wants to sort of reconcile, you know, this sort of American Jewish community with post-war American Cold War culture. And, you know, if you go through the commentary archives, I think Peter Novick does this very well in his book on the Holocaust and uh, Jewish memory. There's a kind of anxiety among Cohen and other people at commentary that Jews are seen as too radical, that, you know, um, there had been many Jews who had been in the Communist Party or radicals in the 30s, and that, you know, we want to prove that, you know, Jews can be patriotic. So commentary is a magazine that, you know, like writes some very vitriolic and I, I would say cruel things uh, about the Rosenbergs, written by, you know, Robert Warshaw, a very fine uh, film critic, who was also Mitch Decker's first boss. And commentary, and so that's the uh, so so that's the part of the, the milieu of commentary. Then the project of commentary, I think, in the forties and fifties, is a reconciliation of this, you know, American Jewish community towards American culture, and you can kind of see where Freud might fit in with part of that. And not just, I mean, I, I think we maybe be we can be a little bit more specific. It's not just like Freud, the you know, who's dead at this point, but the sort of revisionist Freudianism. Yeah of the 40s and 50s, which is a very sort of, you know, I, I think many critics have made this point, very sort of conformist uh, view of Freudianism. It's the use of Freudian psychology to reconcile people to society, to get people to think that the problem is not society. If you're unhappy or there are things that are wrong in your life, the, the problem is like, you know, individual personal neur uh, neuroses, which you can solve through analysis. Uh, and you can kind of see that if you're dealing with a some people who are like this New York intellectual community that are former radicals, uh, some of them, uh, uh, and are now in a you know Cold War culture that's becoming much more conservative in general, and you they want to be reconciled to it. Something like Freud is very useful for that. And not to say that they didn't also believe in the Freud, but I mean like it, uh, it, it has that value. So so do you think that's a fair characterization? Yes. Commentaries founded in November of 1945. And you're absolutely right that there is this desire to fuse Americanness and Jewishness and to suggest that Jews are fully American. It's born with the Cold War, though, the, you know, the, the Cold War. I always tell my students when I teach, you know, my U.S. history survey that the years between 1945 and 1947 are super fascinating because there's all sorts of contingency. It's sort of, it's not 100% clear which direction we're going to go. You know, there's other, there's other ideas about the cold. I mean, it's not entirely true, but um, depending on when you think the Cold War started, but, you know, there's people like um, Henry Wallace. I mean, there's other voices. And then by 1947, we have the Truman Doctrine and the Doctrine of Containment. Mm -hmm. Now, the New York intellectuals have been anti-communist since most of them get disillusioned at some point in the early 30s. You know, Nathan Glazer um, says that we were premature anti-communists and sort of everyone else catches up with us kind of in the later years. So they're really well positioned, but there's also this anxiety about Jewishness because um, Jews had been seen as outsiders in American life. I mean, you know, we, in, in the United States, we have the black white divide. So it's not the same thing as Europe, Europe, but Jews were, their place in American life had been tenuous in the, in, in the immigrant generation. And 
Nazism kind of discredits racial, um, scientific racialism or scientific racism and its corollary scientific or racial anti-Semitism. You know, and a lot of scholars have talked about Jews becoming white mm -hmm. in the post-war years. Now we should say Ashkenazi Jews. Um, I want to emphasize yeah. there's lots of Jews of color <laughs> today, but Ashkenazi Jews becoming white as part of this sort of journey that other ethnic immigrants took in the 20th century. Yeah. And there is there is this desire. And just to get to your point though, but by, by 1947, there is a lot of anxiety that Jews have been tied for all sorts of historical reasons to left-wing movements, to the labor movement, to the communist party, to that history. And there's a desire to kind of prove the Americanness of Jews and to prove that they are not, that they are properly, that they're, they're patriotic Cold War warriors, Cold War liberals. I mean, there's kind of a Cold War liberal consensus in these years. Um, so I think that that's right. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I, I, I think that's, uh, there's a kind of like a sort of a package deal, sort of like patriotism, Freudian psychology to deal with any discontent that remains within patriotism. Uh, but but also like, you know, an America that is, you know, increasingly open to upward mobility, you know, in these kind of like uh, new professions and then in the suburbs, and a sort of desire to overcome the alienation that had been like a major theme of modernism and of Marxism, like, you know, like the old yeah. 20s and 30s intellectual milieu was one of alienation from American society. And for a variety of reasons, that was uh, people like Elliot Cohen thought that was no longer viable and they wanted to reconcile intellectuals with American society and inclu including, you know, reconciliation of Jewish identity with American identity. And I'll just mention like, you know, we, I don't want to say so much about Norman Potter. It's because I think one of the, I think things you and I agree on is he's kind of overshadowed Mitch Decker, but I think yes. Norman Potter in, I think the best of his autobiographies, the first one making it does actually have a very good discussion of what he calls the brutal bargain of assimilation. And he talks about how Jews had to become, if they could become facsimile wasps, uh, they could uh, rise in the ranks, and but it was a brutal bargain because it meant disavowing or giving up portions of the e ethnic experience and Jewish identity that they had grown up with. Uh, and and what Potter's, I mean, it's very interesting because he's such a reactionary. But you know what he's actually describing is something that a lot of scholars now recognize as you know how the Jews became white, how Ashkenazi Jews, uh, their position was renegotiated in American society, and a group that in many parts of America were not seen as white suddenly became white. But but I think describing in a very effective psychological way, you know, the cost of that. But I, I think, so Dector, you know, is in that New York intellectual milieu. And we should mention, you know, she uh, born Mitch Rosenthal, marries in 1948, a uh, man named Moshe Dector, uh, who's also very involved with um, Cold War issues and later became like a very important figure in the uh, issue of Soviet Jews and raising the persecution of Soviet Jews. But uh, their marriage is not much talked about by Midge Doctor. One can surmise it was an unhappy one, uh, ends in divorce in 1954, but she's, uh, and they had, she had had two um, daughters with uh, her first husband. And so she's like in the midst of the 1950s, you know, like a single mother, you know, raising these kids in New York, kind of like New York uh, intellectual milieu. And, you know, like this is not someone one stereotypically thinks of as a conservative. <laughs> the, uh, and in 1956, marries Norman Potter, it's who she had um, earlier met when he first started writing for commentary. And I, I want to kind of emphasize 
that, you know, like not to say the typical liberal thing, oh, you're a hypocrite, you got divorced and you're a social conservative, but just like, you know, like, you know, I think there's a lot of indications and, and Decker herself talks about this, you know, like she's not a Puritan moralist, you know, and no, not just she got divorced, but, you know, her kids got divorced and, you know, like the, the marriage with Ponderitz seems to have been pretty loose in the, like, at least the first decade or so. Like, so, so it's very interesting that that, that sort of Freudian emphasis on uh, being a wife and mother, the, the neo-revisionist Freudian sanctity of the uh, nuclear family was still on a practical level. You could have a wide variety of experience within that. Yeah, I mean, she she's, you know, like Phyllis Schlafly, who um, is known as kind of the leading figure of sort of conservative women in the 1970s. Um, you know, Phyllis Schlafly would portray herself or, you know, she advocated for traditional gender roles, but she herself was um, a lawyer who was very politically active, um, who toured around, you know, and, and her work was made possible because, you know, she had a husband who supported that work. And so I think Midge Dector, there are these like tensions in what she believes. Yeah, because she doesn't fit into that sort of mold a hundred percent. And yeah, she was married to Moshe Dector, had two children. Moshe Dector is involved with the American Committee of Cultural Freedom, um, which a lot of the New York intellectuals, this anti-communist group that forms in uh, 1950. And I think their marriage was awful. She doesn't mention him by name in her memoir, though. I don't know if you looked at John Podhoritz's what he published on his mom after she died in commentary. I think he read it at the memorial, but he said he once asked his, I, I don't remember, basically that the, the marriage was shit. Like it was just, I left because it was shit. <laughs> um, and she was unhappy. And yeah, she had met Norman Podhorst actually at the Jewish Theological Seminary years earlier because she's, she, when she moved to New York, she convinced her parents to let her leave Minnesota at 19 because she would be a student at JTS. And Podhoritz was then studying at Columbia and also taking classes at JTS. So they briefly met then, and then they reconnect when Podhoritz um, starts writing for commentary or, you know, comes in to meet with Elliot Cohen, at least to be, I think his first publication was a review of Saul Bellow's The Adventures of Augie March. Um, and then he's, you know, he's, go, he's away um, serving in the military and they begin a correspondence and then they get married. Um, in 1956 and have two more children. Yeah, I, I mean, I, within that, like, sort of, like, context, I mean, I, I think, like, she spends a few years, you know, they discover that the cost of a nanny is yes. more than what she would get as a uh, salary, so that actually makes economic sense for her to give up her career for a few years. Uh, and she doesn't, she doesn't question that, right? You would think a single mother, though, you know, on the other hand, she didn't have a college degree and she was a, secret a secretary, um, so... <laughs> It's not as if she should have been, but she doesn't question sort of this breadwinning ethic. Yeah, she says she's happy to quit and to raise her children and to stay home and be supported by a man. To some degree, I mean, like, I, I, I think in one, one trying to understand it, like in a large number of ways, like this kind of worked for her and in, in a way that might not have worked for like, you know, like other people and partially worked for just, you know, in that booming economy of the 50s yeah. and 60s. But, you know, um, like once her kids were like of, uh, of like age to go to school, she could resume writing. And uh, she had a husband who Norman Potters becomes editor of commentary in 1960 at a very young age, like 30 years old is an editor of a national magazine. And they're able, she's able to, because of her husband, reconnect with the sort of intellectual milieu in, in a way, you know, in a way that like someone um, 
by not and I think it's just something she herself talks about and I think I, yeah. I, I and you highlight in your chapter on Decker so I, I think that that you want to talk a little bit about that like her kind of view that like a husband provides a wife not just with support but with a milieu yeah that she got entry to his milieu through marriage I mean that she was able to jump in and out of the workforce I think was made possible through connections and she's very blind to that privilege, you know, or that other people don't have the same access to those types of networks. Um, I mean, I think the New York intellectuals were notorious for throwing parties. Um, So certainly when she wasn't working, there was a lively social scene on the Upper West Side where they got together. Um, When I spoke to David Bell, who's a historian at Princeton, and his father is Daniel Bell, um, he mentioned, you know, they just had massive parties. So I don't think she completely dropped off the scene. You know, she was able to speak to people and see people and socialize. But certainly, you know, um, in 1963, when her youngest son is two years old, I found in the archives and commentary, um, the ones that were more recently donated to, um, they're actually randomly in Austin, Texas, but um, that he made her an acting managing editor. So she's, you know, and I, I would presume that she's not working full time, but kind of on her own, her own hours um, and, and juggling that with being a mother to four young children. And then in 1967, Willie Morris uh, becomes, moves to New York City from Mississippi to become like an associate editor at Harper's. And he is just a few years younger than Pod Horitz and they become fast friends. And when, when Morris is, becomes, he's named um, head editor of Harper's. Norman Pothorts convinces him to hire Dector. Um, you know, and so she went from being a, and it's, it's a different time. It's a different time, I think, than we live in today, but she didn't have a college degree. She started off as a secretary, then her husband has her as an acting editor, and then she gets a job at Harper's. That trajectory was made possible definitely through these connections that were, that existed among the New York intellectuals. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And and I think like, you know, in her autobiography, he kind of celebrate, you know, uh, kind of like celebrates that as a as an advantage of marriage. But I mean, an advantage for one person is always a disadvantage to others. And so I can just think about, you know, the obviously the people who don't have that connection, who are trying to make a kind of uh, career uh, out of intellectual life, you know, without having the husband, you know, they're going to like um, be much more critical of the system. And I think a lot of the kind of tensions between her and uh, the sort of second wave feminism that emerged in the 1960s is that, you know, there's an existing system that she benefited greatly from and was able to work within. And a lot of other women, you know, like that system worked against their interest, but she just saw them as being like, you're just whining and complaining. Like, well, you don't yes. have any real problem. You're, vict- you're not good enough writers. That's yes. the problem. You haven't worked hard enough and you're whining and complaining. And, you know, she says sometime also in her autobiography about working and not working that she felt like her story was reflective of many American women, you know, and that's a big, that's a big assumption. And certainly this idea that a male, you know, a breadwinner could take care of the family as a white upper middle-class ideal that many countless women who aren't married or, you know, families who don't have husbands who make enough money, they're not, that does, that's not their reality, but she, she felt like her experiences were, you know, the norm. Yeah. And when second wave feminists come up, she sees them as whining and privileged, overly privileged and not willing, yeah, to do the work. 
So, I, I mean, in some ways, one can see the sort of, you know, Dr. Potterett's relationship uh, working together because he has that also that kind of Horatio Alger's, you know, yes. pull yourself up by the moustache. I mean, if one, you know, encourage listeners to like read Making It because that, that is kind of like, you know, Horatio Alger's except applied to intellectual life, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. And, you know, like he kind of refers to like how he and um, Jason Epstein, who goes on to find the New York Review Books, they kind of, you know, bonded. They were not friends at college, but they kind of bonded more afterwards. And it's partially because they were successful and there were a lot of other people that they knew uh, who were, I'm quoting like Norman Potterett's afterwards were losers. And, you know, and, and uh, Potterett says, you know, he, having watched the film The Hustler, he got good at like spotting people who were like losers and who didn't have what it takes and who couldn't make it. So, so that's the, 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 you know, that's the real dichotomy. It's like either you're, you know, you have the talent and you make it or you don't and you fail and that's within like a sort of system that where you're a success in so of course you're going to defend that system when that system starts getting criticized as in the 60s by second wave feminism by the black power movement by the gay rights movement when it emerges you know you're going to be like very you know if you're someone who's so committed to the system and has succeeded within it you're going to be like very defensive you know it's easy for you to become very defensive and lash out absolutely um, and I think, you know, these figures, the men and the women were sort of, yeah, they were blind to some of the privileges that they had. Their opposition to affirmative action, there was this sense that Jews had made it, Jews like themselves had made it in post-war American life. So why couldn't everyone else through this meritocracy? And, you know, someone like Nathan Glazer later to his, you know, comes back and says, I was wrong. Mm-hmm. I was wrong about affirmative action. I was wrong that Blacks and people of color could assimilate into the system in the same way that Jews and white other white ethnics did, because I didn't see, I, th- I mean, he doesn't use these exact words, but I think the structural racism in the system. Yeah, um, no, absolutely. The real blindness is, and one sees it in, in their discussion of the system as a meritocracy, because especially even in the 40s and 50s, you know, what you basically had was what Katz Nelson calls white affirmative action, where you have all these like programs like the GI Bill, you know, like expansion of college, uh, uh, loans for like homes in the suburbs that were very structurally uh, designed and benefited uh, white people. And then and, and the big change was that now white people included Ashkenazi right. Jews and Italians and Irish in a way that it wouldn't have included in the you know 20s and 30s and so 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 people who are benefit benefited from that affirmative action for whites suddenly are you know become resentful when there's like an attempt to have an affirmative action for other groups uh and one sees that like uh, i think there's like an interview with her in one of the books where she kind of says you know like you know we struggle to join the establishment and then the establishment was gonna throw us over on behalf of the black it's a very kind of zero-sum game us versus them within that political transformation but i mean it's very it seems very continuous with the sort of 1950s upward mobility like uh it's basically repurposing that against these new movements right yeah, absolutely. You know, the 19 or the post-war years, the, the 10 to 15 years after the post-war years are unusual in the sense of, you know, the post-war prosperity and the expansion of higher ed. And a lot of these figures in the New York intellectual milieu, not only are they finding places in publishing opening up to them, but, you know, universities opening up to them. Um, but it's the specific moment. I'm not sure if I'm answering your question that, it, that they're, they're kind of blind to later on. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, like, in retrospect, like, it seems like a very um, privileged position to be and the people uh, who were there, not just the conservatives, uh, were, were blind to it. I mean, basically, like, Daniel Bell was able to get like, you know, a tenured position based yes. on like articles that he wrote <laughs> for, for like popular publications. And, yes, uh, you know, not like, alone. Yeah, um, not alone. Like, there are a lot of like these New York intellectuals who, you know, didn't have like a PhD, but because the oh. university was expanding so quickly, they needed people. They were people who wrote books and had, you know, real merit. Like, but, you know, from the perspective of like, you know, like anyone in academia in 2022, yes. like it's just like mind blowing. <laughs> it's completely mind blowing. And the system changed by the 1960s, you know, yeah. that it was um and that that didn't exist anymore right so yeah. so so in any case I mean, one can see why like people who you know benefited from that system it's easy to be blind to a system throw such largesse at you i i think dr in particular so so you mentioned she went uh harper's you know in the late 60s yeah. and, uh is i think that's like kind of the late 60s early 70s really where she's kind of coming to her own as a voice and yes. there's two sides. I want to mention, I do want to mention, like, she's a very kind of important editor at Harper's at that point becomes a kind of cutting edge magazine. And like Willie Morris usually gets credit for that. But I mean, Dector was right there. And she's the one who can help him bring in like Norman Mailer published The Armies of the Night in Harper's. It took up a whole issue. And, she, you know, she was able, the one who took that like sprawling manuscript and got into like magazine form. And that's like a major kind of achievement. Uh, she brought Irving Howe into Harper's and he was like a regular writer there. So, so a really important editor. I mean, like, uh, and, but also reacting against uh, the, the emergence of second wave feminism. And she starts writing these articles in like commentary in Harper's. I think this in the Atlantic as well. And uh -huh. Yeah, and I, I, what I wanted to say, the, the, uh, before I ask you about that period, uh, the one point I would make is she's still coming from a place of sort of centrism, like of sort of center liberal, like these are, you know, like these are not, at the time commentary was seen as, you know, uh, liberalish publication, you know, and Harper's and uh, sort of cutting edge, the Atlantic, a more conservative, but, you know, very establishment, you know, these are not, you know, the, she's not writing for uh, Breitbart, right? <laughs> but, but, but she's writing for very mainstream publication, and she's making arguments that are kind of based on a liberal consensus that had existed in the 40s and 50s of this sort of, you know, revisionist Freudianism of, you know, uh, 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 being a grown up being means being mature, giving up childish ways, and that if you um, um, become gay or lesbian, that's a sign of immaturity. If you don't yeah. marry, that's a sign of immaturity. If you complain about the system and say that there's a patriarchy that's holding you down, that's also immaturity because the you know like uh, uh, we know from psychology that you grow up and you mature and you accept the limits of life. Uh, and but she's writing as a kind of like a liberal, and then um, uh, yeah. So, so so do you want to say anything about that? Because I think that's her like um, her major period. That's and she writes books like *The Liberated Women* and *The New Chastity*. And yeah, yeah. I mean, I there's a there's a thread that goes back even you know earlier, which we mentioned um, when we we started talking. Which these ideas, um, she had begun to explore. Uh, or she often wrote about women in book reviews beginning or in reviews that she wrote in the late 1950s and early 1960s. And there was already this sort of sense that marriage 
is should be about kind of an economic union between a man and woman that there should be a male breadwinner that it's the role of of the man to take care of the woman um and that yeah proper heterosexual heterosexuality under sort of this revisionist freudianism um means maturing and growing up and taking on these masculine and feminine roles that are um, supposedly natural or biologically um, ordained. And I do, you know, I don't, I, it fit within kind of, I think, you know, the mainstream perspective, I guess, of 1950s and 1960s American life. But if you start going back and sort of tracing her writing, you see this kind of conservative edge in the sense that her, you know, she was a real proponent of traditional gender roles, mm -hmm. um, even though she herself in some ways challenged it, you know, in her career, which is not uncommon for conservative women, like I mentioned, Phyllis Schlafly, but there's this, this sense. Um, and I think for other, you know, I, I argue in my book that, you know, the New York intellectuals who became the New York intellectual or the women, excuse me, the women who became New York intellectuals who were actually considered New York intellectuals were very few. Mm -hmm. um, and there was a sort of, they kind of, they had to sort of perform or kind of embody a masculinity when they were in the public sphere, but at home, they took on very kind of traditional gender roles. And I think their ideas about sex and gender are in, informed by Freudianism or mid-century revisionist Freudianism, which that, you know, masculinity is active. Femininity is sort of passive and about um, being nurturing. Um, and so that through line is there, you know, beginning in the late 50s and 60s. And then when Dechter begins writing about women's liberation um, in Harper's and she collects um, a number of her essays, um, in her first book, uh, which was called um, The New Chastity. Uh, the first the one New Liberated Women and Other Americans. Oh yeah, The Liberated Women and Other Americans is her first one. I have it right here, right? That's a collection of her essays. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of a thorough line. And so then when second wave feminists begin to challenge, um, you know, ideas about masculinity and femininity about um, begin to sort of suggest that gender is a social construction, basically. Yeah. Um, she balks and she's opposed to it because for, you know, and she's not alone. I think, you know, I think someone like Elizabeth Hardwick, another New York intellectual and Diana Trilling, I mean, they felt, you know, they very much, they very much separated their femininity from the work that they did as writers. Mm -hmm. um, Diana Trilling, I think actually, which I have a, um, a chapter on Diana Trilling, she's also understudied to some extent, but um, she ultimately actually agrees very late in her life that women's liberationists were maybe right. Like that, you know, that gender is a social construction, that Freudian categories of masculinity or neo-Freudian categories of masculinity and femininity are not like biologically based. Um, but Dechter doubles down um, and she attacks the women's movement for trying to sort of suggest that women were victims of a sexist kind of American culture. Yeah. Uh, and that, you know, again, that's she, she, she dissents from this idea that um, sex and gender are social constructions or gender is a social construction, I should say. Yeah, no, that's right. And I, I, I do want to say like that there's a kind of like a wider reaction um, th that does include um, uh, other people that are not like initially 
conservative. Uh, some of them become conservative and some don't. Like I'm thinking of like someone like Joseph Epstein, who yeah. like, Harper's writes a kind of infamous piece uh, on homosexuality uh, uh, during the period where Decker's there. I, is it, I don't know if it's the late 60s, or early 70s, but it uh, basically, you know, the, the, the big sentences where he says, you know, if he, if he could wish away that homosexuality, you know, doesn't exist, he would do so. Uh, and, you know, that caused a lot of backlash and protest. Um, but even someone like, you know, Irving Howe, who's coming out yeah. of the Democratic Socialist Left, I mean, he in Harper's publishes yes. a critique of feminism. Um, and Kate that, Millett. Huh? Kate of Millett. Kate but, sexual uh, politics. Yeah, yeah. Which is like, you know, like I think overlaps with some of uh, what uh, Midge Decker uh, and uh, Joseph Epstein believe. So, so there is a kind of, um, uh, you know, like an older Cold War liberal consensus uh, uh, th that is, you know, uh, exists outside of conservative circles. But I think that, I mean, I think what distinguishes um, uh, Dechter and Potteritz, um, uh is that, you know, like some of these people change. Like I, th I, I do think Irving Howe and Trilling change their thinking uh, in response to feminist critiques. Uh, whereas, as you said, like, you know, like Dechter doubles down and, you know. Um, yeah. I think it's very, yeah, Irving Howe does appear in Harper's and writes this horrible, or not horrible, but writes a very harsh, um, I guess a typical Irving, um, like he goes for the jugular as Judith Walls or Michael, Michael and Judith Walls or what's told me, you know, like that was Irving Howe's and the style of all the New York intellectuals. But Irving Howe only republished that, um, he notoriously published his essays over and over again in different books. He was very smart um, re republishing essays, but he only published the one that he wrote against Kate Millett once. Yeah. Um, and he deleted one of the most offending lines. And then in his own memoir, um, A Margin of Hope, which comes out sometime in the 1980s, I want to say like 83, you know, he admits that he was wrong, mm -hmm. <laughs> that there was, that sexism was real. And that, you know, he and his socialist of hearts um, who believed, you know, in, 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 in sex equality, like, in, you know, from couldn't see it at the time. And he, he, he's cheering for women's liberation on the side by the 1980s. Yeah. Um, and Diana Trilling too, I, I mean, I, she's, she also, um, she's often seen as very much an anti-feminist, very much a critic of women's liberation, which she was. Um, she appears at a debate with Norman Mailer called Town Hall. I don't know if you've ever seen the documentary. Yeah, that's a great documentary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I would, if uh, uh, listeners could get a hold of that, that's like a- It's available. Documentary, huh? It is amazing. I think if you Google it, it might be on YouTube now, um, yeah, Town Bloody yeah. Hall. And um, actually that was an article that again by Norman Mailer that was also a critique of, um, of women's liberation appeared in Harper's, Dechter edited it. Um, and after that, Willie Morris ends up getting fired um, and Dechter resigns in protest as do other people on staff. Um, but, um, oh, so Diana Trilling, getting back to what I was initially thinking, she's, she's often, you know, even to this day as seen as a fierce critic of women's liberation, which she was, I think Vivian Gornick, uh, published a review of the one biography on Diana Trilling, which appeared by Natalie Robbins, I think in 2017, where she's very, you know, I think she remembers Diana being a critic of women's liberation and um, which is true, but Diana actually shifted. Um, her unpublished writing, her speeches by the late seventies sort of suggest she never liked the style of women's liberation. She didn't like the, um, 
I guess, the radical style of, you know, that was part of 60s radicalism. But she came to understand that, you know, basically she says at one point Freud was wrong. <laughs> Freud, yeah. Freud, Freud was wrong, you know, there, that to suggest that there, there's these biological categories that men and women can't escape. Yeah. Um, so the doctor uh, doubles down. Yeah, yeah, no, no. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, I, 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 so I think that the, um, uh, Dr. Doubling Down, I mean, there's probably like, it's uh, overdetermined. I don't want to get too biographical into it, but I mean, you know, there's ways in which the, the sort of commentary magazine gestalt, um, you know, uh, really hardens uh, in the sort of early seventies. Um, and, you know, like I, one would think contributing factors would be uh, sort of Zionism uh, where, you know, like the original, you know, Elliot Cohen commentary of the 40s and 50s, like a lot of institutional American Jewish um, uh, Jewry, was kind of a little bit skeptical of Zionism. Not sure ambivalent. Huh? Ambivalent. Ambivalent. Yeah, bit. yeah, yeah. Ambivalent is a good word. Yes, it's very ambivalent about Zionism. Like you know, supporting the project of a Jewish state, but not sure how that fits in with like reconciling uh, Jewishness with Americanism. Right. Uh, but but you know like but someone like Decker was uh, an anomaly in that milieu because she had been uh, a strong Zionist from the start. And there were other people in the commentary ambit. I'll mention uh, Marion Maggot, who uh, yeah. uh, was an, an editor there, uh, who was uh, similarly inclined. But someone like, um, uh, but the event, uh, you know, the 1967 war, um, you know, like transforms um, uh, American Jewish attitudes towards Zionism, uh, overends that, um, Ambivalence. I, I, I think Norman Potter's, uh wrote a book called, um, I wrote an essay for the New York Times called uh, Now Instant Zionism, like how like, you know, like uh, mapping out this, this transformation. And so, um, and I think with that, like, you know, uh, Zionist current, like a kind of like um, uh, a recommitment to the Cold War, even in the face of the defeat in Vietnam, or perhaps especially in the face of the defeat yeah. in Vietnam. You know, feeling America needs to be empowered, and there's ways in which that gender politics and the uh, hardline foreign policy, the militarism, um, like kind of goes hand in hand. Where you think that, like you know, uh, feminists and gay rights are going to weaken America, and that you need, you know, like um, uh, strong men to like fight wars. Uh, and one sees that, like, you know, like in Norman Potter's, he writes, a, again, in Harper's, <laughs> writes an essay called a Cultural of, of Appeasement, you know, which basically says that, like, uh, ties appeasement in, the, in England be, uh, before World War II with gay, uh, the sort of uh, uh, gay, elite gay culture and thinks that the same thing is happening there. And I think like, one sees that in, like, Mitch Decker's writing as well, like, the, this sort of, this dual commitment to, like, both our hardline foreign policy uh, and you know she's very big in a uh, as an organizer in something called the Committee on the Present Danger and the Committee for a Free World. These organizations to you know drum up uh, 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 a new Cold War. And she um, is, um, but also writing you know continues to write these critiques of feminism and of gay rights. And so I, I think we have to understand that as a package deal. Does that make sense? Like literally, a hundred percent. Um, and I, you know, so Dector, we've, we've talked a lot about what Dector's saying about women and traditional gender roles, but there's also this real concern um, underlaying all that writing about masculinity, 
that masculinity is kind of under attack and the 1960s is under attack. Um, uh, in the early 1960s, she warns that marriage is now emasculating men um, and because it's been feminized to, to think more about feelings than being an arrangement where like a man takes care of the wife. And then masculinity, again, um, I think is a is a through line in Podhoritz and Dechter's writing. I mean, Podhoritz's most famous essay is My Negro, or most famous early essay is 1963's My Negro Problem and Ours, um, where he sort of tries to address Black Jewish relations through the lens of autobiography, which becomes his like signature um, uh, form of writing um, in his four or five autobiographies. But in this essay, he talks about how being called a sissy is the most dreaded epithet in American um, boyhood. So you see even in Podhoritz's this concern about masculinity and just getting back to your point about making it where he talks about needing to become a, a wasp basically to succeed. I think he's really struggling. I mean, there's this also this desire to be an American man, <laughs> to embody masculinity or a traditional American masculinity. At the same time, Jewish masculinity um, has long emphasized the intellectual and the scholar. And so I think there's this sort of tension in Podhoritz to some extent between this kind of intellectual masculinity, which he aspires to as well, but also this American manhood. And then in 67, in, in the pages of commentary, I think it was Milton Himmelfarb, who's another figure <laughs> related to the dynasty because he's Gertrude Himmelfarb's uh, brother, older brother, uh, Gertrude Himmelfarb marries um, Irving Crystal, and their son is William Crystal. So again, another neocon dynasty. But Milton Himmelfarb, in an article that he publishes in Commentary, you know, he says, 1967 shows that while Jews can be pretty good with a fountain pen, they're also really great with a rifle and a tank. And I think you're exactly right. Like in this moment, we're gonna, and and I'm not actually. I should say, I'm not. There's scholars who have argued this. Melanie McAllister comes to mind. Um, she wrote a book um, more than 10 years, or oh, I don't know, in the early 2000s, where she argues that you know Israel becomes a model of kind of masculine middle militarism mm -hmm. um, for conservatives in this moment when the United States seems to be, um, you know, in a quagmire, yeah, not yeah. winning, but yeah. actually, um, I you know I don't you know struggling to assert its will to defend. Um, you know, its ideals um, and to defend U.S. foreign policy, Cold War foreign policy. And so Israel becomes this model. Um, and it's not the, you know, Zion, going back to the founding of Zionism, you know, um, I don't know, you know, some of the early Zionists talk about new Jews, reinventing Jews so that they're not just um, sissy scholars, not that they called them sissies, but um, uh, uh, and, and that, there, you know, in Israel, there needs to be sort of a new Jewish man that is born. And I think American Jews um, and certainly the commentary crowd sort of realizes and accepts that vision in 67. And it has, it does, it ties into this, this foreign policy that develops, um, this, that becomes sort of the neocon foreign policy, but also is tied to Dechter's critiques of kind of, you know, women's liberation um, and eventually gay rights. And yeah, this, um, you know, crazy essay that Podhoritz published, or I think it's crazy, you know, when you read it, um, you know, trying to make this argument that the United States, like you said, is similar to England in the interwar years because it has appeasing Hitler and we're also suffering from appeasement. But then he pivots and says, you know, gay writers in both periods <laughs> are to blame. Um, you know, and he names in, in our period, you know, James Baldwin and Allen Ginsberg and Gore Vidal, um, 
so, so there's this anxiety about masculinity that I think is a through line um, for Norman and for Dector, for Midge and, for Midge and Norman, and then becomes, yes, central to kind of a neoconservative worldview, um, especially in, um, or if, at least when we think about neoconservatism today in terms of foreign policy, but that, that it's also in the social conservatism of the new, the new right. Um, yeah, no, no, no. I no, I, I think that's I think that's right. Well, and I, I think that in some ways it is a kind of alliance of um, necessity. I mean, when we're talking about um, you know these the you know New York intellectuals who are you know uh, heavily influenced by Freud and have these foreign policy views, like there are not a lot of people like who follow that. And you know, commentary you know at its peak has a sort of hundred thousand readers, but it's very influential because it's read by an elite and yeah. he has all sorts of ties to like think tanks and and government policymakers. but still you you know in a democracy you need a kind of like a mass voting base and i think one of the things that they discover in the 70s is that you know there's a new right that's emerging out of the christian right that is you know very anxious about the same things about feminism and gay rights and the decline of American hegemony or the challenges to American hegemony. And there's a kind of alliance um, uh, that, that, that forms of you know, people who come to the same conclusions for, from different roots. And a lot of the work of commentary you know, in the sort of 80s and 90s was about trying to reconcile these two things and to, to try to convince you know, the sort of secular uh, uh, conservatives uh, that, uh, you know, the religious right is not so bad. And, you know, like that the, um, uh, you yeah, I mean, know, Norbert Potter, it's famously or infamously, you know, writes these things where, you know, like Pat Roberts, uh, uh, Robertson, is it Robertson? Hey, the, uh, the preacher, yeah. you know, the preacher. you know, like who publishes stuff that's like, you know, uh, you know, undeniably like anti-Semitic about, you know, uh, uh, the, the uh, Jewish bankers, be responsible for things, but you know, like Potteritz writes these things where it's saying, well, but he supports Israel, right? Like, you know, like, and then, then therefore, and yeah, and, and you know, like contrasting that to the left, you know, uh, uh, where there's also some anti-Semitism, but it's also anti-Israel. And so that becomes the litmus test. Like a redefining anti-Semitism as being, you know, pro or anti-Israel uh, as a way of like um, facilitating this, this uh, political alliance. Um, so, uh, the, uh, uh, and what's interesting is how easily it is for Midge Dector to like kind of go into that milieu. Like she, she finds, you know, she's like talking to people who are not from her background, but are like, you know, these uh, Midwestern businessmen who fund the Heritage Foundation or these evangelicals. Uh, and, you know, like, but they have the same worries, right? They have the same set of concerns about 1970s America and they can, they can come together. Yeah, I mean, when I, I interviewed her um, in 2011, and you know, she told me when she she was named to the board of the Heritage Foundation, and you know, its president um, Fulner. What's his first name? I'm. Um, Is it Edward Fulner? Edward Fulner. Thank yeah. you. I'm pretty sure. Um, he names her to the board, um, and he sees that she, she's the you know she can help unify various strands of the conservative movement because she's been writing this socially conservative commentary. Um, not commentary, the magazine, but socially yeah. conservative um, ideas for for years, and then there's a lot of you know, I mean, I'm there's there's some there's this anti-Semitic kind of um, 
component of the conservative movement, certainly from the, you know, before World War II, um, and people who are skeptical of the neocons because they were Jewish liberals at one point. And he makes the argument that she can help um, uh, unify uh, the conservative movement. But I had another point, and now I'm forgetting what your question was. Um. <laughs> oh, well, the question was just about how, like, you know, there's a meeting of minds between the. Oh, right. She told me in her interview that when she walked into the Heritage Foundation, no one, no one, and nothing was foreign to me. It all just like made sense, you know, but which I found um, in 1972, uh, she, she gave an interview, I think it was with the Wash Post, where she, she says that um, she basically doesn't like Phyllis Schlafly or Bella Abzug, and they deserve one another. And when I asked her about these comments, I mean, I'm not quite quoting her 100% um, right, but she did say Philip Schlafly and Bella, um, Bella Abzug deserve one another and neither of them are like for men or something. But when I asked her about those comments, she, did, she claimed to not remember the interview. And then she said later that, um, you know, she owed, she had to publicly apologize to Phyllis Schlafly because she owed her so much. Um, uh, which actually then kind of discredits this idea that she didn't remember saying that, but I don't really, um, who knows, <laughs> but she did yeah. feel like what, you know, she felt very comfortable um, in these conservative circles. Um, and she's hugely influential. I think like, like um, Edward Fulner sort of suggested is that she does, she is able to kind of unify these various strands of the conservative movement um, that were kind of at odds with one another. Um, and provides this kind of link. Yeah, this kind of link and this kind of synthesis. I mean, like, I think she yeah. kind of like, you know, shows how all these things can connect together. And, um, you know, there are, I mean, I think there are tensions with this sort of, you know, um, the existing American right and these neoconservatives for reasons that you suggested. There were some like, you know, there was uh, like some uh, uh, people in the sort of Philadelphia society, a kind of old right redoubt. Paleoconservatives, yeah, right? Yeah. The paleocons, I think. Yeah, 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 the paleocons who and the <laughs> kind of, um, um, the, you know, they're basically the old traditionalist, right? People like Russell Kirk, who basically said that these guys are interlopers. And there's kind of like an anti-Semitic suggestion, like these guys are intruding in our space. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, there's issues with there's someone like Joseph Soburn, who is an editor at National Review, who was an anti-Semite. And yeah. who's like uh, uh, Dechter um, was kind of an instrumental figure in convincing William F. Buckley to kind of, you know, first announce him and eventually Soburn. Like fired from uh, National Review, so 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 there is like in there. I, I just want to emphasize, you know, there's like it's not a necessarily totally smooth marriage. It's a kind of you know, there's like uh, like in any sort of relationship, there's you know, <laughs> there's like uh, some back and forth, uh, and some people some compromises have to be made. Some people have to go overboard, you know. Um, uh, there's a quote from Mitch Decker, which I, I think like nicely sums this all up which is that she said, there comes a time when you need to join the side you're on. And I, I think that sort of like um, sums up like how the conclusion she came to in the seventies, like thinking like, you know, like I might have like, you know, she was actually a registered Democrat, but thinking like, well, you know, like actually the side I'm on is the Heritage Foundation, is Phyllis Shapley. And so you kind of have to like give up the pretense of, well, I'm just a liberal, right? And I, I think it's interesting that both her and, Norman Potter has give up the label of neoconservative and say like, no, we're just conservatives. Um, yeah. 
and she says in the 19, you know, yeah, they give up the label that there's no difference between the neocons and the and the conservatives. It's all just one thing in this point. Um, I mean, that's in the 1990s. I think most of these statements, you know, yeah. this is pre um, 9-11 and um, the, the war on terror, which kind of revives the neocon yeah. um, label. But there is this sense that, yeah, there's been this, we're just conservatives. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I think, I think more than, uh, uh, and in some ways, I mean, I think the trajectory, trajectory your scholarship shows is that maybe they were conservatives all along, and it was just the process of history that, like, you know, made them finally admit it. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, with, with the understanding that you know, within the conservative coalition, there are distinctions, and like certainly after 9-11, she again tries to revive the synthesis by like short, uh, writing a book on Donald Rumsfeld that's basically like a love letter, uh, say, you know, like, uh, but how manly he is. And like, you know, again, emphasizing, the, <laughs> you know, like, I don't think, you know, like, I think most people, you know, like, if you're going to do a film about uh, Donald Rumsfeld, you're not going to hire Brad Pitt or uh, uh, Tom Cruise, but uh, but, but the, the whole book is about how, you know, and the, uh, Rumsfeld shows not only the need for a strong response to terrorism, but also these old manly virtues that we have to revive. And again, like, uh, so, so, so um, um, uh, I mean, I mean, the irony is that parts of the right, even though, I mean, Potterets, and Dector were eager to be seen as just conservatives, and uh, Potterets, um, you know, would later endorse Donald Trump twice, and is still, you know, support considers himself a supporter of Trump. Uh, there are elements of the right that are still have that old, you know, long-standing anti-Semitism, and see neoconservatives as interlopers, as you know, these Jews who have come in and taken over our territory. Uh, and that makes for an interesting generational tension because I think that the younger neoconservatives are very wary of Trumpism uh, and of the, uh, the the Trumpist right because they understand like you know uh, that they're not like necessarily welcome there. And so someone like John Potter or it's the son of Mitch yeah. Dr. Norman Potter, it's, you know I mean he's been pretty consistently anti-Trump as has William Crystal. But I mean I think the older I mean like yeah Dr. And Norman Potter, it's like, you know, they're, they, they, um, they, as she said, she, there came a time when you need to join the side you're on. And she decided that, you know, this Republican right was her side. Yeah, come hell or high water. Um, and I think also there is this like weird, you know, fed as, or, you know, that Donald Trump somehow embodies this, this masculinity that you need in a leader that has long, informed their views and so yeah it doesn't matter that trump um you know said the the people who marched in virginia the white nationals who said jews might are going to replace us doesn't matter um because he he embodies this this you know he's not a sissy um which which trump says or trump um pod Hort said in an interview in 2019 <laughs> with the conservative magazine that he was initially skeptical of trump um, and didn't really like him because Trump seemed to be dismissive of the neocons. His whole campaign seemed to be um, to push back against kind of the interventionist um, Bush era conservatism, um, but that uh, he changed his mind. You know, he eventually felt that there was too much anti-anti-Trump animus and that, you know, Trump was not a sissy. He fights yeah. back. And that language, you know, you see that language in making it. <laughs> like yeah, yeah. Um, going back to 67 when sort of, um, you know, Podhortz is talking about himself. Like he doesn't want to be a sissy. And it's, you know, 
it seems so ridiculous in some ways that this is such an informing world. I, I mean, and I don't mean ridiculous is to dismiss it quite the contrary that like we have to take that language seriously because it's been, um, you know, the, 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 the straight line lead, you know, that connects neoconservatism to conservatism to Trump. Um, and he, it's been influential in the right. Mm -hmm. yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I think, uh, uh, that, I mean, I think your work really uh, underscores the the element of masculinity, uh, and one sees that in both Decker and Potter as with like you know both her, uh, you know, like I saying as a child she was like the boy of the family, and of, you know like uh, and 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 that uh, you know like um, finding you know a niche in that sort of New York intellectual milieu as the wife of, uh, but then also Norman Potter it's. Uh, you know, like even like in making it, like you know, like it talks about like you know, like um, needing to prove to like the other tough boys in Brooklyn that he's not like you know just a uh, 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 a nerdy, uh, nerdy, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. I, well, a nerdy school, you know, um, good student. Though he wants to be that too, he has to be yeah. both. Because yeah. um, I think, you know, coming out like Jewish, you know, part of, I think, why Midge Dector sort of describes herself as like the honorary son, um, at least, you know, traditional Jewish gender norms, it was the men who were supposed to study to some yeah, extent, yeah. And the women, um, women were allowed to be economic actors, they were in, you know, and they were, they could be breadwinners, but scholarship and study was considered um, masculine. Yeah. Yeah, no, 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 no that, 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 that's, yeah, that's a very interesting point. And uh, yeah, yeah, so, so I mean, um, and, and this is uh, the whole thing in, you know, making it of this tension between the teacher who's trying to make him yeah. into a simile wasp and then his uh, male friends who are in a kind of like a gang and he has the jacket and he's so proud of having the jacket. Uh, uh, yeah, there's a lot of like very, uh, uh, you know, fairly messed up ideas about gender. Well, uh, and, just, and it, it's interesting that it, 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 it undergirds an entire worldview. It does. And then, you know, at another point, he talks about how when Philip Rob, who was one of the editors at Partisan Review, invites him to contribute to the magazine, it was like a bar mitzvah ceremony, meaning he had become a man in yeah. the New York intellectual milieu. You know, he says, you know, at one point, I mean, he just this goes back to something you said earlier about commentary, but I would, he, you know, Elliot Cohen once said that, um, uh, both partisan review and commentary were actually Jewish magazines, but commentary actually admitted it. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. The uh, so I, I mean I think we've covered a lot of ground, and uh, uh, you know I think we have given listeners a sense of who Mitch Decker was, and I want to you know underscore emphasize like Phyllis Shapley, like you know yeah. like very important figure, you know like sort of formative in like certain uh, very powerful notions of gender that exist on the right. Um, and, you know, someone to be taken seriously. And uh, yeah, I feel like, you know, as I said, I don't think the existing accounts quite do justice to her, but I feel like uh, your, um, uh, the book that you're working on and then also our conversation, I think I'll hopefully like will illuminate that and then really like, you know, place Dector in the history that she belongs to. I think so. And one other thing I'll just add, which I think you had mentioned to me in one of our conversations or maybe is that she also mentored a lot of people, right? A lot of concern. And I th yeah. think her son alludes to this too in his obitch in his remarks that he, that she had a, tr you know, at least in conservative circles, she was seen as kind of this den mother who mm. influenced and nurtured and mentored a lot of um, figures. So, 
Yeah, no, that's right. If you if you go through like the books of um, various figures on the, on the neoconservative right and the right in general, like she's in the looks for the acknowledgement. She's often mentioned. She is someone who's like you know, um, and that, that that does yeah tie in with the kind of like gender roles in the sense that you know like unlike Norman Potteritz who's like out there proclaiming you know, making it proclaiming his own voice as a writer, there's a kind of like you know gendered notion of the woman as editors. Uh, the the uh, grandmother type who you know raises a whole brood of younger writers, uh, and perhaps as a final note, I mean we've gone on a bit long, but I I, I want to actually circle back to because I mean this family dynamic is very interesting and <laughs> just this whole issue of commentary as a family magazine because yeah. you know like the Decker and Potteritz were there and then later uh, John Potteritz becomes the editor, is still the editor now, and then you know many I think all the uh, uh, Dector, Dector's uh, three daughters as well, John Potter, wrote for commentary, as well as like a grandson, uh, Samuel Munson. Uh, so it's it's like a real like a family uh, uh, thing. And the this, you know, like Norman Potter once wrote that in America, you know, um, the affirmative action is an affront to you know, the great ideal of America, the revolutionary idea of America, that it shouldn't matter who your father is. Uh, you know, that you should be just judged by merit. And like, you know, one gets be skeptical of that, like, was that ever true of America? I mean, like you've had dynasties from the start, you know, from the Adams to the, you know, Bushes and the Trumps, you've had family dynasties. And certainly like the issue of slavery, you know, kind of shows that it actually does matter who your father is like the but beyond that like in Potter's own case like you know like it you know it's not I think an accident that John Potter it's the son of Vince Decker Norman Potter it's his theater commentary and I, I noticed that commentary once wrote a favorable review of Adam Bellow's book in defense of nepotism you know the nepotism is a necessary you know part of life of you know you have family relations and so like one way to define the politics of this cohort is that they're against affirmative action, but they're in favor of nepotism. And I think that that like maybe highlights, you know, that the, their position comes not from any principle defense of meritocracy as if such a thing could exist, uh, but uh, you know, like against the real belief of like, you know, we have ours and we want to protect it. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy um, and absolutely accurate. Um, and I, you know, the one thing I would just, I wonder, you know, what, how, when it comes to Trump, how Norman, and I always wonder how Norman, this is a little unrelated, but how Norman and John Podhoritz um, and Midge Dector, how that, you know, what it's like at the dinner table. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, yeah, I know. I mean, no, no, you know, I, think, I think that's a good note to end on, because I mean, it's not like there's a sort of uniformity of views. There's actually a real tension in conservative yeah. circles. As well, there should be. I mean, I think that there's ways in which you know Trump has made much more salient the sort of xenophobia and, to be frank, the anti-Semitism yeah. of the right, and that that introduces all sorts of tensions. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I think that's another reason to you know think about uh, this group of people seriously, and then also be, but not in a caricatured form, but like actually look at the the. Uh, the issues that they're grappling with and how they try to reconcile it. So, so again, I want to recommend to people uh, 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 Ronnie's uh, uh, work. I'm, I'm looking forward to the book when it comes out, and I'm I'm grateful you shared some of it, uh, some of your insights uh, with us. Such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.